We have been studying through some Old Testament books for the last several years. We began in Deuteronomy in 2020, and through all the circuitous, weird things that have happened over the last few years, it took us a while to get through Deuteronomy, but then we went into the next book, Joshua. We finished Joshua at the end of the year last year, and now this year we are going to be getting into the book that follows Joshua, the book of Judges, is where we will be this morning. And so what I wanted to do today is to kind of give a bit of an introduction into this book. Why the book of Judges? Why for such a time as this? What, what is it about this book that I think has a message for us? A year ago, this last January, I went to the first of these doctoral seminars that I've been going to at Southern Seminary. And the focus of that first doctoral seminar was on the Christian engaging in a countercultural world. Maybe you have some experience with that. But what I discovered as I was there in this room a year ago, and there's about a 14 of us in this room, and we're talking about all kinds of different things that are going on in the world, I realized by the second day that everyone in the room except for me lives in a very dark red state. And their experience of interacting with people in their community, in their church, in their neighborhood, within their family, is different than my experience. Because we live in a blue state. In fact, we live in the bluest of blue states, I think you might have recognized. Which means that if you've been in California for a long period of time, and I grew up here, born and raised in San Diego, then you have had to interact with people who don't see the world the same way that you do. And this actually matters in a very interesting way. When I was interacting with people in this classroom a year ago and realized that most of the people in this room, they, they don't have that experience, I, I started to really think about what that means for us as Christians living in a world that is, in many ways, what has been described as post-Christian. And that is the world that we live in here in California. Have any of you noticed that the people that you interact with do not view the world the same way you do if you're a Christian? Anybody seen that? Yeah. What I found in talking with my friends in Kentucky is that that has not been their experience. That's something they've never experienced living in rural Tennessee or Kentucky or Alabama or Mississippi, which is where most of these guys come from, some of them from uh, rural North Carolina. They don't necessarily have this experience. And in the last several years, it has somewhat taken them by surprise, some of the things that they see happening in the culture. But many of the things that happen in our culture, I don't know what your experience is, but I know for me, I look at it and I go, well, it's kind of like par for the course. I'm not surprised sometimes by the things that seem to be a big surprise to a lot of people in other parts of the country. You know that you live in a blue state as a Christian if you have ever experienced the loss of a friendship or a relationship because of your worldview as a Christian. You know that you live in a countercultural world if you've ever found yourself feeling the inclination, the temptation to self-censor your worldview in interacting with people at school or work or in your neighborhood, where you, you question whether or not you should say what you want to say, or you try to search a way for a way to say it diplomatically, you know that you're living in a post-Christian culture. If you have ever wrestled with how to share your opinion as a Christian in a diplomatic way because you're concerned that you might lose a friendship or you might lose the contract or you might get a bad grade because you say what you say, then you know what it's like to live in a countercultural world. If you've had that feeling at any time, you realize that you are something of an outsider to the culture in which you live, which is, is strange for many of us. 
because this culture has traditionally been a culture that is united around the Judeo-Christian principles that we find in the scriptures. And so for Christians living in the West Coast or the East Coast or in many of the places in continental Europe or in the United Kingdom or in Canada, this is the reality for most of those people living in a post-Christian world. But many of the people in the rest of our country have only just recently started to realize how challenging that can be as they look at some of the things that are happening in the world. But you, if you have lived in California for any length of time or maybe your whole life, you have some inclination of what it means to be in the world but not of the world. In the series that we just did, Life in Connection, which we do at the beginning of every single year, we talk about life in connection with God, life in connection with one another, and life in connection with the world. And I taught the first message, and then Pastor Jason taught the next two messages. And during those messages, we went back to the book of John, chapter 17, where Jesus prays for his disciples. And not just his disciples who were there listening to him, but in the prayer, he says, I pray not only for these, his disciples, Thomas and Bartholomew and James and John, I pray for those who will believe having heard their word. That's you if you're a Christian today. So he prayed for you. And something that he prayed is, pretty awesome in that passage. He prayed this in verse 14. I have given them, my disciples, your word, Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. He continued, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Now, how many of you would have wished that he would have prayed that God would just take us out? Like, you get saved and boom, go to heaven. Like, I vote that proposition. Amen? If we were in Kentucky, y'all would say Amen. Thank you very much. We're going to work on that. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What was Jesus praying there? He was praying that God, by his spirit and through his word, would set you apart, even though you live in a world where you are a countercultural light shining in a dark place. He said, would you guard them, sanctify them, consecrate them by your word because I'm leaving them in a world that hates them. Now for the better part of American history, the experience of most people here that became normative experience was you could expect that the person that you would interact with had a basic framework of the world that you did. That is no longer the case. And that has no longer been the case for a lot of people living in the East Coast, West Coast, in these places where we live for a very long time. But it has shocked many people in other parts of the country, especially over the last 10 years or so. And so a year ago, I was at this seminar, and we talked about a lot of the things that are happening in the culture. We talked about critical theory. We talked about LGBTQ plus issues. We talked about the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which has ignited a huge political wildfire in our culture in the last two years. We talked about the crazy debates that are happening in our culture around gender and sexuality. And during the conversations a year ago, I threw out a question to the people that were gathered there, and I said, do you think that the floodwaters of this craziness that is coming up to your door do you think that we've reached the high water mark of this flood of chaos in our culture? Do you think that we've reached what some people refer to as peak woke? We're at the top of the wokeness. And the consensus of the 13 or so, peop- 13 or so guys in that room, including the professor, they said, we hope so. 
So we were back at it again a couple of weeks ago, talking about many of the same things in the same room with the same professor and many of the same people were in that room. And there was fairly broad agreement as I asked that question again, do you think that we've reached peak woke? After the craziness, let me just mention some things of the last 12 months that, that show the shift of our culture. Just one word will bring to mind, target. Bud Light. I know you probably didn't expect to hear that at church on Sunday. <laughs> Disney. The shift within Disney. We're seeing within many of the news media outlets that there's a lot of people losing their jobs because of wokeness. So I said, do you think that we've reached peak woke again a couple of weeks ago? And the response from many of the people in that room was, yeah, we think we have. And I said, hi, I'm Miles. I'm from the future. And I said, I, I hope you're right. I hope that their thought that we've reached the high watermark is true. I said, I hope that the floodwaters are beginning to subside. I hope that we will see a return to some form of rationality and reasonableness of thought within our culture. But I'm not entirely sure that we have. And so we had a long conversation about this, actually like three days of conversation about this. And, and one of the things that we talked about and one of the things that I thought a lot about is what, what if we haven't seen the high watermark? What happens if our culture continues down the path that it has been going down for quite a while and not just the last 25 years? And a further question, what is causing this? And if we can determine what is causing this, then the follow-on question is, is there anything that be, can be done to move the needle in the opposite direction? Is there anything that we can do to change course? This has been something that I've been thinking about for actually many years. Pardon me, my, my plague from Tennessee is causing my nose to run. I've been thinking about these things for a very long time. And they actually... Sadly to say, they caused me to lose sleep and they caused me to like, be on this never-ending quest to try and figure out how do we respond to these things. It drives my wife and my kids crazy because I can't stop myself from thinking about this constantly. And maybe it doesn't concern you, but it deeply concerns me. I'm deeply concerned that the worldview that formed the Western world, which is a Judeo-Christian worldview, I'm deeply concerned that this worldview is being gutted. It's being gutted by a different worldview that is caustic, that's toxic. It's a cancerous worldview. The worldview that built the world that I believe you probably enjoy and recognize this, the worldview that built the world that makes this place the envy of the world and is the reason that you have so many people trying to get into this country. I know there's a lot of opinions about what's happening on the southern border, but recognize that if you lived in a world other than this world, you'd try to find a play way to get here too. In fact, your ancestors did. Mine did. My dad's family came here from Naples, Italy in the early part of the 20th century. Why? Because there's something about this place that's different. And it is or has been like a light shining in a dark place calling many people to come from all over the world and it is still the place that many people want to come and are trying to come. 
But this worldview that, that built this world, it has not just created an awesome place here, but it has been the net benefit for the rest of the world as well over the better part of the last 500 years. And I think that you could verifiably prove that by not even a very deep study of history. And I've studied history extensively over the last 25 years, and I see it very, very clearly. But what is hard for us to imagine is that it could all fall apart very quickly. It's hard for us to imagine that because all of this that we enjoy seems normal to us. But if you study history, you'll discover that this is not normal in, in human history. What you have experienced, what I've experienced in my entire life growing up here in this wonderful nation, and I've traveled all over the world, and I can't wait to get back to this place when I travel. And I love other parts of the world. I've lived in other parts of the world. They're wonderful, but I can't wait to get back to San Diego, California. It's hard for us to imagine that it could change because it's normal to us. It could fall apart. Why? Well, I think that there are some important answers to that question, why? And I think that we find those in the scriptures. And, and especially in passages in the Old Testament, which is why we've been studying through these things in the Old Testament for a while. In the New Testament, that's the last third of the Bible. The Old Testament is the first two-thirds of the Bible. The Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the things that we find in the New Testament, speaking about the Old Testament, those are the books from Genesis to Malachi, he says all these things that happened to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is really the story about the people of Israel and the nation of Israel. He says all these things happened to them as examples for us, that we might learn from them, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Now, I know a lot of Christians, when they hear the ends of the age, it like gives a tremor through their body. Like, ooh, the end of the world. I don't know why we get all tricked out on the end of the world, but we do. And there's a lot of opinions about what, what was meant by that when he says the ends of the age have come. There's all kinds of different interpretations about what that means, but at the very least, it seems to mean that there are times in which the world changes significantly. And you've been watching it, I've been watching it. The world around us is changing significantly. But he says, all these things happened to the children of Israel as examples. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. He, he calls Christians to humility which is a really important thing for us to take note of because there is a way in which we can think like, hey, look at what we've achieved. Look at what we've built. Look at what we've made. And he says, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. The stories of Israel in the Old Testament show us repeatedly what happens to a people when they arrogantly think, we've got this. Look at what we've done. And then a slide begins to take place. Now, I am, though, even in all the craziness that's happened in our world, one of those crazy ones who actually thinks that the Bible has important answers. Point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, the Bible contains answers and solutions to our biggest questions and problems. That, that's one of my fundamental beliefs. This book that we study every week and hopefully you read throughout the week this contains answers and solutions to our biggest questions and problems. What are our biggest problems? Well, in our culture over the last 25 or so years, we've been told that our biggest problems are climate change. Our biggest problems are, right now, inflation. It's a big problem, isn't it? Our biggest problems are 
generationally high interest rates. Our biggest problems are immigration. Our biggest problems are racism. Our biggest problems are diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our biggest issue and question is who will win the 2024 presidential election? Because it'll fix everything, right? I hate to break it to you. I'm from the future. Ultimately, when we open the pages of scripture, we discover that our biggest problem is not those things. Our biggest problem is sin. All of those things are just downstream effects of sin. In America, for the last several generations, we've been told that those things are the biggest issues that we need to concern ourselves with. We've been told in our culture for a very long time, and not just the last two and a half decades, but for many, many decades. We've been told that there is no such thing as evil. There is no such thing as sin, what the Bible calls sin. And there is no such thing as God. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. None of this is new. And when you open the pages of the scripture, Old Testament new, you discover that it's not new. In fact, 3,000 years ago, a wise king named Solomon wrote these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. The experiments that this culture has been engaged in over the last several generations, they've been tried in the past. In fact, about 400 years before Solomon, the people of Israel, they experimented with very much the same thought, very much the same philosophical ideas. And it just so happens to be written down for us in the book of Judges. Where, where these experiments take place. Judges is the story of a people who lost their way in the world. Judges is the story about what happens to a people and a nation when they lose their way, when they depart from belief in God and faithfulness to his word. And it ends up in a dumpster fire. That's why I'm calling this series Dumpster Fire. Because that's what we're going to see. For most of this year as we go through the book of Judges, it's just one dumpster fire after another dumpster fire. Everything goes to chaos. I kind of regret the day at the end of 2019 where I said to the church that my word for 2020 is chaos. I had no idea. And it continues. But not for the reasons we might assume. The chaos started a long time before. You begin to wonder, though, what, what is causing this? How did we get here? Well, as I said, the Bible contains answers and solutions to our biggest questions and problems. So I think the Bible is a good place to start. So what I would like you to do is open your Bibles to the book of Judges. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of the ushers will bring you one. And we're actually going to open to chapter 2. We'll get to chapter 1 next time. But chapter 2 gives us an important framing for the book. Chapter 2 contains kind of the, the theme of idea or framing premise of these stories that we'll discover 
in the time of Israel's history called the time of the Judges. Judges chapter 2, it's the seventh book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Verse 7, we read this. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. He was the one who led the children of Israel after Moses' death and brought them into the conquering of the promised land, which we studied in the book of Joshua. The people of Israel, they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, his generation, his leaders, his judges, if you will, for the nation. They served all the days of Joshua and the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works which the Lord had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in Tibnath Herez, in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. All these things happened. This is history. That's when they tell us all these temporal markers, these specific locations and places. This tells us that this is history. But look at this, verse 10, and maybe put a highlight mark next to it, an exclamation point. This is key. This is important. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, a nice biblical poetic way of saying they died. When Joshua and the elders that were with Joshua died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which God had done for Israel. And what was the result? Verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12, they forsook the Lord, God of their fathers, and they followed other gods. They bowed down to them, the end of verse 12 says, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Asherah. Those are two gods of the Canaanites. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. This is the framing for this book. Another generation arose that didn't know the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Later in the book, in Judges chapter 17, we'll read it, and it's repeated four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When Moses gathered the people before they came into the promised land and he read the law to them and taught them, which is the book of Deuteronomy, he told them, God is to be your king. He is to govern and lead and guide you by his word, his Torah, his law. But during this time, the people forsook the Lord. They forgot about God. There was no God to govern or lead. There was no king in Egypt or in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They did what our culture says. Follow your heart. Bad advice. They did what was right in their own eyes. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was against God's law and against God's nature. God was supposed to be their ruler, their governor, their king. They forsook the Lord. They did not respect God as king. And what happens? Point two, if you're taking notes, God is the primary solution to our problems. If you depart from him, you have major problems and no hope. That's going to be the story of this book. The children of Israel in this book, they will serve God as long as they have a good leader like Joshua or the elders that were with Joshua. And then when those elders die, the people arrogantly think, look what we've done for ourselves. Look how good we are. Look how amazing we are. We've made this land fruitful. 
And then they begin to depart from God and they slide into a place of idolatry and adultery with other gods. And then God allows them to go into the hands of their enemies who destroy and despoil and persecute them. And then at the bottom of that, they cry out to God, God, save us, we repent. And he raises up a leader, a judge. And that leader leads them back to repentance to God and leads them in victory against their enemies. And then what do you think happens when that judge dies? The children of Israel begin the cycle again. It is a cycle we'll see over and over and over in the book of Judges. There arose a generation that did not know the Lord and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. God had made this clear through Moses that this is exactly what would happen. That means this was entirely avoidable. Have any of you ever experienced something in your life that you look back on afterwards and go, that was entirely avoidable? I'll never forget. I was just about to turn 21. It was a Sunday and I came home from church to my parents' house and there my younger brother's friend had his dirt bike. And he said to me, Miles, do you want to ride the dirt bike? And I said, yes, I think I do. And my mom, the prophetess of the Lord, She said, I'm going in the house. You're going to end up in the ER. And by golly, I ended up in the ER that day. Now, she's not really a prophet. She just understood a simple principle. Play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. And that's exactly what Moses taught 3,400 years ago. It's, it's right there in black and white in Deuteronomy chapter 28, what we call the blessings and the curses of the law. If you follow God and obey his Torah, his law, you will be blessed. But if you disobey and reject God, you will be cursed. It is simple, if this, then that conditional realities. It's come to be known by theologians as the Deuteronomic principle. It's just a principle taught in the book of Deuteronomy. That's what Deuteronomic principle means. In the New Testament, it is put forward as the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. How many of you have heard that before? You reap what you sow. What that means is if you plant an orange tree, you're indefinitely going to get apples, right? No, 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 no. You reap what you sow. Like begets like. And so Paul in Galatians would say, if you sow to the Spirit, that is, you do those things that God has revealed by His Spirit in His Word. If you sow to the Spirit and follow the teaching and principles of the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life. And if you sow to the flesh, do what's in your heart, man. You'll reap corruption, destruction. And here's the amazing thing about the principles of God. If you follow the revealed principles of God, even if you do not believe in the miraculous and the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, even if you are not an orthodox Christian in the truest sense of what it means to be a Christian, those practical truths still beget blessing. Let me give you an example. There was a man named Thomas Jefferson. Maybe you heard of him. He was what we would call a deist. He was not a Christian. Those who want to argue that he was a true, died-in-the-wool Christian, he was not a Christian. He was, in fact, a slave owner, but not a Christian. But he did believe that the truths of Scripture were important, and he wrote some of the most amazing words in American history. We hold these truths to be self-evident, 
where did this idea come from? Because it's not self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he with others with him, some were actual Bible-believing Christians, he with others banded together to create a more perfect union. Not a perfect place. Many imperfections along the way. Many things we've screwed up in. But they endeavored to create a more perfect union founded upon what? There is a God who created us and made us equal. And he endowed us with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they have yielded more than two centuries of phenomenal transformation. When Thomas Jefferson wrote those words, there were about a billion people living in the world. And more than 90% of the billion people that lived in the world at that time lived in absolute poverty. 200 years later, when you get to, well, 230, 240 years later, when you get to 2015, the population of the world had increased from 1 billion to 7.4 billion in 2015. And now, only 10% of the world lives in absolute poverty. How did that happen? For all of human history until around the end of the 17th, 18th century, the whole world lived in absolute poverty and in the space of 200 years, that has completely been turned on its head. How did that happen? And, and what, what did that? What caused that? You don't have to search history very hard to dis far to discover the answer to that question. If you obey and follow the principles that God has revealed in his word, then you will be blessed. If you disobey and depart from those things, then you will be cursed. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap life. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Solomon understood this and wrote in Proverbs chapter 14, righteousness, that is doing what is right according to God's law, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin, sin is lawlessness or following, rejecting God's commands. Sin is a reproach or brings destruction to any people. And what we are watching in our culture today is these things play out right before our eyes. You don't have to be a prophet to see what's coming. All you have to do is to consider the scriptures. In fact, the Old Testament prophets thinks of names like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Malachi and Habakkuk. These individuals were basically experts in the book of Deuteronomy. That's why I set out to teach through the book of Deuteronomy before we got to any of those other books, because you will better understand the history of Israel, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. You'll better understand the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, if you understand Deuteronomy, because these guys were experts in Deuteronomy, and they could say, well, Deuteronomy 28 says, if this, then blessing, if this, then cursing, here's all the things that you're doing, you're going to end up cursed. And after the fact, the people would be cursed, and they go, wow, that guy was a prophet. No, he was just an expert in the law. Understood what the scriptures say. Play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. Let me bring this up to our time. Since the 19th century, the Western world has been flirting with godlessness. These things that you're seeing in our culture did not happen overnight. They are the consequences of many decisions made over time. Since the 19th century, we are now living in the 21st century, the Western world, especially in America, has been flirting with godlessness. 
This is a civilizational experiment to answer the question, can man live without God? In the 17th and 18th centuries, the Western world experienced an enlightenment, a phenomenal enlightenment in politics and philosophy. You study it if you take any college course on recent history. The product, or one of the products or outcomes of the Enlightenment was, in the 19th century, a scientific revolution. The most revolutionary idea of the seven, this scientific revolution in the 19th century came through a man by the name of Charles Darwin, who in 1859 published a book called On the Origin of the Species, and contained in the book On the Origin of the Species was the theory that everything that we see actually came about by random chance and mutation over billions of years. Charles Darwin died in 1882. In the same year, 1882, a German philosopher published a book called The Gay Science. His name was Friedrich Nietzsche. In The Gay Science, he wrote this. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours? He ran into the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then and he provoked much laughter. Has he gotten lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed at the madman. The madman jumped into the midst, pierced them with his eyes and said, Whither is God? I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I are all his murderers. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Here the madman fell silent, looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw down his lantern on the ground. It broke into pieces and went out. He said, I have come too early. He said, then my time is not yet. This is a tremendous event. It's still on its way, still wandering. It has not reached the ears of men. That was from 1882. Friedrich Nietzsche's premise in The Gay Science was that reason and rationality through the Enlightenment and through the scientific revolution Reason and rationality and science had undermined the foundations of belief in God, and he believed that God being officially dead meant that man could now joyfully and with carefree detachment from dogma and doctrine could begin to create new possibilities of human existence and freedom to create values from which new vistas of meaning and truth would arise. That's what he put forward. And then Friedrich Nietzsche died in 1900 in Germany. What happened in the early 20th century in Germany? You know exactly what happened. Though there are some who deny it, it's very clear what happened. Now, at this point, there'd be many people who say, yes, but we, we course corrected. We fixed that. We had the Nuremberg trials. We dealt with that. It'll never happen again. Never again. You hear people say, never again. We fixed it. We course corrected. We're enlightened. Look at what we've done for ourselves. Look at this amazing place we have made. We're the envy of all the world. They all want to come here. Look at what we've accomplished. 
following World War II, the World War II generation. You know, I was, I was thinking about this the other day, and, and I was thinking about GIs, and I was like, what does GI mean? Do you know what GI means? It means galvanized iron. I didn't know that. That generation, the galvanized iron that was galvanized in the trenches of the first war and on the grounds of Iwo Jima and over Berlin, they came back and they became very bullish on babies. They produced a generation called baby boomers. There's a few of you here this morning. Born between 1946 and 1964. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Oh, come on, John. You is one, buddy. Born between 1946 and 1964, during that period of time, the centers of military, political, economic, technological, scientific power shifted to this country. From where? From the United Kingdom. The U.S. became the center of the Western world. The U.S. also became the academic and educational center of the world. 51 of the top universities of the world are here in the United States of America. And much of the philosophical thought of Friedrich Nietzsche and his progeny, they also moved into the academic institutions of the United States of America during that period of time. So what happened? April 8th, 1966, Time Magazine released a cover story. The cover was a bleak black backdrop with the red words, Is God Dead? Question mark. The cover alone ignited a fire in American culture. The article did not really set out to answer the question, is God dead? It really just went from theologians and philosophers to anthropologists and all kinds of the intelligentsia in the United States and Western Europe and, and kind of interviewed them about this idea of the deadness of God and what does it mean? And there was a lot of questions in the mid-1960s, 1966. The article basically tried to answer the question, what happens after God's funeral? What happens after the death of God? I'm not sure that we've entirely answered that question, but for the better part of the last 58 years, we've been playing out the experiment to see, can man live without God? Simple question. How do you think it's going? When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. That's not the baby boomer generation. That's the baby boomer generation's kids, their grandkids, millennials and Gen Z. There arose another generation that did not know the Lord, nor the things that he had done for the Western world. Today, nearly one-third of Americans, that's 90 million Americans, identify as a group of people called the nuns. They're not religiously affiliated. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. They might say that they're spiritual, but not religious. Today, an increasing number of people in our country are mentally and emotionally unstable and unwell. Every indication shows it. Today, people in our nation are self-medicating with alcohol and pornography and all manner of chemical substances, mind-altering substances to try and deaden the numbness or the pain of nihilism. Today, there is an increasing confusion about identity and questions of purpose. 
Today, there is what many have identified as a meaning crisis in our culture. Questions of whether or not the Western view of the world, the cultural values of this culture have anything worthwhile to offer to the world other than empire, colonialism, and patriarchy. Today, the hope of many religiously affiliated people in the United States think that if we just elect the right president, everything will be fixed. I'm from the future. Wake up. Let me remind you, God is the primary solution to our problem. It is a sin problem. It's not a political problem. It's not an economic problem. It's not an education problem. It's not an immigration problem. It's not a racism problem. It is a sin problem. All of those are the products of sin. God is the primary solution to our problems. If you depart from him, you have major problems and no hope. Today, we're facing an increasing number of believers and non-believers alike who think that we may be seeing the unraveling of the Western world. What would it look like if the Western world was gone? Well, all you have to do is look at history and see what did the world look like before those things that came from this Judeo-Christian worldview, the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Reformation and all of these things. What did the world look like? Well, most of the world lived in absolute poverty. Oh, we could never go back to that. We've righted all those wrongs, have we? God is the primary solution to our problems. If you depart from him, you have major problems and no hope. Either that's true or it's not. I believe it's true. And if it is true, how should we respond when we see these things happening in our world presently? It's, it's the question that apologist, Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer asked in 1976. How shall we then live? I don't have any time, but I'm going to tell you what I would have told you if I had more time. <laughs> I want to give you five steps for moving the needle in the opposite direction. It's on your outline. You might want to write these down. How shall we then live? Five steps for moving the needle. First, renew our minds through Scripture. The Apostle Paul in Romans and understand the Roman world of the first century in which Paul brought the gospel that turned the world upside down, or I would say right side up. The Roman world of the first century was very similar to the paganistic, pluralistic culture you now live in, in the post-Christian society. This is Rome first century. Read Roman history, it's going to get a lot worse. Let me tell you one of the things that the Romans did. They followed the pattern of the Greeks. They said that one of the ways to raise boys was sexual pedophilia. We're headed that way. That's where it's going. All old things are new again. Nothing new under the sun. Renew our minds through the scripture. Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 12.1. I beg you, therefore, church, by the mercies of God. God, have mercy, he says, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your only right response. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? Through the scriptures. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might display and show and prove what is good and acceptable, God's perfect will. The world needs to see 
Christians living according to the perfect will of God, and only that comes through us offering ourselves to the Lord and being transformed by his word. So number one, renew our minds through the scripture. Number two, endeavor to be salt and light in a distasteful and dark world. Jesus preached to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall the earth be seasoned? It is thence good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Number one, renew our minds through the scripture. Number two, endeavor to be salt and light in a distasteful and dark world. Number three, create and grow Christ-centered countercultural communities of faith. What is that? That's a church. A church is a Christ-centered countercultural community of those who believe. Not just on Sunday, but as we gather together in homes for meals, as we gather together for growth groups and connect groups, as we are the people of God in this community, create and grow Christ-centered and countercultural communities of faith. Number four, engage and invest in the lost generation. What is the lost generation? It's not a group of an age group of people. It is all of those people in our culture who say, I don't know if I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know if there is a God. I'm agnostic. I'm atheistic. Engage and invest the lost generation. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them the things that I have commanded you. You are a chosen generation, said Peter. A royal priesthood, God's holy nation, his own special people, that you would proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Renew our minds through the scripture. Endeavor to be salt and light in a distasteful and dark world. Create and grow Christ-centered countercultural communities of faith. Engage and invest in lost generation. Fifth and finally, engage the culture persuasively with the gospel. That word persuasively is key because this is what American Christians, I am convinced, have forgotten in the last 40 years, my lifetime. We don't know how to have persuasive conversations with people who don't agree with us. We just want to shout at them. We just want to yell at them. We just want to tell them that they're sinners. We just want to tell them they're going to hell. We just want to tell them to repent. We have no idea how to engage with them persuasively. And let me tell you, all of the low-hanging fruit of easy people to win to faith, it's gone. You must learn how to have an actual conversation with someone who does not agree with you, who votes according to blue state values, who thinks that abortion is a woman's right to choose and thinks that it's a perfectly fine form of birth control, who think that you can actually change your sex on a whim and decide that you are now a female if you're a man. You have to learn how to speak persuasively with that group to help them to see that it's not reality or truth and to convince them to the view that you have. The Apostle Peter said, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give an answer, a defense to the one who asks a reason for the hope that is within you and do so with meekness and fear. Paul said to the church at Colossae, continue earnestly in prayer, be wide awake, vigilant, in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in prison for, that I may make manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, 
that you may know how to answer each one. God has called you to reach your family members and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors. It's my calling and job to equip you for the work of the ministry. I will do everything in my power to be able to do that. I, I can't stop myself from constantly trying to do that all the time. But there is only one hope for our culture. There's only one hope for our world. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only, there's only one plan. It's plan A and there's no plan B. That's it. God help us. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? <coughs> Father God, we certainly need your help. We are living in strange times. Weird and going to get weirder. Lord, help us to redeem the times where the days are evil. And having done all to stand, to stand there for, having put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking up the shield of faith with which we will quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Help us, Lord. Help us to stand strong and to shine brightly in a dark world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.